I don't know about you, uh, but I just love weddings. I think they're such good fun. Uh, they're some of my favorite events to attend or be involved in. As we just prayed, I'm uh, so excited for the engagement of Paul and Aaron uh, getting engaged this weekend. Uh, and now all the fun begins for them. And when we think about weddings, there are just so many small and then also significant signs that lead up to a wedding. Markers that let all of us know that there is a wedding that is close. Those things that are probably already on Aaron's list. Getting a venue booked, buying a dress, buying rings, choosing a cake, doing the marriage prep material, however long it takes you. All of those things build expectation. They all cause the couple to to look forward, to think about that wedding day, to know that that marriage supper is coming. Then as it all gets close, things start to happen really quickly and obviously. There is a rehearsal the day before and there's a small rehearsal dinner afterwards. Then on the day, the bride and the groom, they, they get ready separately. They put on particular outfits. They do particular things. The night before and the morning of all caused the couple to say, our wedding day is here. Even though they're not actually married yet. There is an order to these things. We know that order. You don't buy your dress after the wedding day. All of these things point to the wedding being close. As we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 today, we're going to see some of these signs of the coming day of the Lord, how it can be a bit similar. As the Thessalonians were looking around at their city and their circumstances, there was clearly some things going on in that city and in their life that made them think that maybe this day was close. And so they needed a reminder from the Apostle Paul. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. I'm going to read chapter 2 for us. I'll try and do half a good job as Sunday just did for us. Let's turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and I'll read from verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, 
because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Friends, as we walk through this chapter together, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, I think the main point for our time is, Christian, do not be deceived, for the Lord is coming. So stand firm and remember the gospel. Christian, do not be deceived, for the Lord is coming. So stand firm and remember the gospel. The text, I think you saw, just splits into two sections, one a bit bigger than the other, and so our two points uh, will be reflected in that. And we're going to look at our first point there in verses 1 to 12. The, the larger is where we'll spend the majority of our time. Our first point is just keep calm. Keep calm, verses 1 to 12. But last week, as we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we saw the Apostle Paul writing to this church. This is a church that he planted, and he was writing to encourage and strengthen them in the midst of their persecution. Chapter 2 is really just now the main bulk of the letter where he will deal further with this coming day of the Lord. And again, his main aim, just to encourage the Thessalonians. We immediately see this point and, the, and I think the urgency of it here in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. Now we're at a bit of a disadvantage, honestly, reading this letter. As Paul was writing to a church that he visited, a church that he taught in. And so there are just going to be some gaps as we look at this letter. They'll become clear. And we are just going to humbly seek to fill those this morning as much as we can. But I think Paul is trying to answer a question through this letter along the lines of the Thessalonians saying, are we about to see the day of the Lord? Are we about to see the day of the Lord? And, and should we be worried? Is that something that could, should concern us? So Paul kicks off here in verse 1 by telling us just more encouraging things about this coming day. The coming, the coming of Jesus, his return we see there also includes the gathering of Christians with himself. These are not, I don't think, two separate things. Paul is saying they are really just one and the same. They both happen at the same time. He's trying to grab their attention. He's saying, guys, you've got to listen. I know you're struggling, but you've got to listen. You're not with Jesus yet. He will come and he'll gather believers to him. This, the fact that you're not with him right now should be a giveaway to you. This coming has not happened. 
Christian, when it does, you will know all about it. Make no mistake. Jesus is coming back, Christian. He's writing to the Thessalonians, but this applies to you, Christian, this morning. Jesus is coming back. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. The encouragement for the Christian is that his followers will be united with him. Following this, we then just have more exhortations straight away from Paul to the Thessalonians. Verse 2, we see that he doesn't want them to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So much of what Paul is encouraging them is to the same as what Jesus says in Matthew 24. This is what is going to happen. You guys don't need to be alarmed or scared. You are with me. I've chosen you, as Paul will return to say. Last week it was Not be alarmed by today about what you're going through. And this week it's, do not be alarmed by what is to come. Both your today, Christian, and your tomorrow, all of those are in Jesus' hand. God is sovereign over all of those. But what is it that has shaken the Thessalonians? Verse 2, we see that I think Paul himself is even unsure of exactly what has kind of tipped them over the edge By this list that he gives, he says, a spirit, and that just means a prophecy of some kind, a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. The us there, just the apostles. Consistent again with Jesus' own promise to the Christians that there would be those that come to deceive. There would be false teachers and false prophets. The warning through this letter to the believers, both then and to now, is be careful what you listen to. Christian, be careful what you read. Be careful what you watch. Be on guard. Friend, just because something is published by a publisher somewhere does not mean it is good. Just because someone has uploaded something to YouTube does not mean that it is true. Or simply because someone says it on a podcast does not make it right. Friends, we need to be very careful about what we take in, what we digest. Now, we have our very own bookstore that Richard, with the help of the elders, has helped fill with fantastic, solid, truthful books that we recommend. That's a resource that you can trust. If someone you know and trust recommends a book to you, go and buy it. Trust those who you know. If someone you know and you trust, like Jenny, for example, runs a podcast on theology, go and listen to it. We have so many good resources out there. Be careful, Christian, what you read, what you watch, what you listen to. Don't be deceived. Don't settle for junk. T.D. Jakes, Joyce Mayer, others we could list. Don't settle. Because the Bible is clear that our bank accounts and our pockets, they're not guaranteed to overflow in this life. There is no guarantee that you will be free from pain or persecution in this life. This is not what Jesus said. 
It's clear that Paul is saying and reminding the Thessalonians of the same thing here. Fill your minds and your hearts with the things above. The word of God. With material from trusted sources that you know is rooted in scripture. May come as no surprise, friends, that Netflix or, or Spotify or Apple do not know what is best for the Christian. In fact, I would say you are the very last person that they care about. Now here for the next six verses, Paul is going to show the Thessalonians some of what has to happen before Christ's return. And I want to remind you, no matter what, God is in control and Christ will reign victorious. Paul is looking all the way to the end. And he's just seeing two things that he mentions go hand in hand and are are final signs of Christ's imminent, meaning right about to happen, Christ's imminent return. These are things he's saying are not happening right now. Those two things there, he says, a serious rebellion, that is an opposition to God, and then there will be the rise of a man of lawlessness, going to hear that phrase a lot this morning, a man of lawlessness. Let's deal with them, I think, separately, but recognizing that I think, as I said, there are significant gaps in what we know, and that most importantly, Christian, this morning, God is in control. Christ will return. And then as believers, we can take comfort in that this morning. This rebellion that is mentioned, like the the mystery of lawlessness in verse 7, is already something that is happening in some ways. Paul is showing that at at the end, before Christ's return, there really will be an increase and intensity to this rebellion, to this rejection of God. There are arguments that it refers maybe to a a large-scale apostasy of Jews or Christians, but I don't think this is the case. I think there is definitely a warning here of that, of apostasy. I think we can be sure that in the last days, there will be those that we think that are Christians that will reject the faith and apostatize. Paul here is warning and encouraging the Thessalonians to be steadfast in their faith. This will always be a danger for churches. That those that we thought were believers turn out to be those that rebel against God and reject Him, His Word. Instead, just pursuing and enjoying what is false. This proves that they were never Christians at all. Paul is saying that here in these last days, this rejection of God will increase and that he wants the Thessalonians to be ready, but also to keep calm. You think about when Soldiers are preparing for war. There is really no real way to to replicate those warlike conditions in training, but they do train hard. They are disciplined. They know deeply what their mission is so that when that day comes, when they're on the battlefield, they're not surprised. They're not shocked or caught off guard, but are well prepared to carry on. It's the same for the Christian life. Friends, the Elders here, our job is to make sure that you are ready for whatever you will experience in this life. There's the day-to-day struggles, 
but also the long-term persecution, the war of what it looks like to live in this world. Honestly, simply, we do this by holding fast to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In stark contrast to Christ, here in our verse, a character is introduced there in verse 3, the man of lawlessness. And then ultimately, following straight away, ultimately his destruction and defeat by Jesus Christ. I think for each one of us, we, we want a timeline. We want to know what is happening when, but for Paul, to the believers here, what's most important is not the timetable. It's not the exactly what is happening and when's it going to happen, but the encouragement for the Christian of their future hope in Christ. I really don't want us to miss that this morning. But here for this man of lawlessness, the, the direct contrast with Christ and himself is immediate. This is not just a Roman general or a past political leader, as some had thought. This, I think, is a specific person that is being mentioned. And here we see that Paul even uses the word revealed. It gives him a title as the son of destruction. Friends, make no mistake, this is different. This man has his own revelation, a word normally reserved for Jesus. I think it's a man. I don't think it's a nation state or a group of people due to the things that Paul is going to say he will do and how he will act. And I don't think it's Satan himself, as Satan is mentioned separately uh, for us in verse 9, as the one that is actually empowering this man. Others were given this title, uh, those before uh, this time, uh, even 150 years before Jesus, Antiochus, a Roman general, was given that title. Anyone who they thought it might have been, even in the last 2,000 years, are all just a type, all pointing to one that will come, one that Daniel prophesied about in the Old Testament, one that Jesus says is to come in Matthew 24. This man is coming. It is true. It is real. We know there will be false teachers and false prophets. But at the end, there really will be one specific man like this. Then in verse 4, look there, we see some of what that rebellion will look like. Look there with me. Again, all of this just following clearly what Daniel 11 says and what Jesus calls the abomination of death, desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. There is nothing that this man will not stand up against. Like Christ does, this man will demand exclusive worship. Exalting, it says, himself against every so-called God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's going against every celebrity, every ruler, every authority, against every religion. Might even be someone that springs to your mind right now that this could apply to. Verse 12 just speaks of all those that don't follow God, all those that ignore the truth. Is the word of God and the law of God, those in rebellion, as we saw earlier. The all used there shows us that there will be no mistake to everyone about who this is. This man of lawlessness, there'll be no more debate. 
more than this, so defiant, so shocking, so obvious is his rebellion and acting that he will place himself, not just against celebrities or sheikhs or kings or queens, but against God himself. That's what it means for him to take his seat in the temple of God. Friends, there will be no debate. Is it a ruler? Is it that person? Is it that president or that pop culture icon or that false religious leader? There will be none of that. We will all know. And for a time, I think we will find it shocking. I think this will seem like a big deal to us and to the watching world. But make no mistake, Christian. This is expected. This is prophesied. God is in complete control. He knows. And he has known. Verse 5 brings a, a breath for us and a slight rebuke with Paul asking if the Thessalonians remember what he said when he was with them. That again reminds us that there is just teaching here that we don't have. They knew more than we do, but be sure Paul's eschatology here is in line, as we've already seen, with what Jesus said, with what Daniel has prophesied, and what the whole of the New Testament is teaching. Verses 6 and 7, we then reflect on what is happening right now with this man. The he, in uh, look there in verse 7, the he there tells us that the man of lawlessness is being restrained right now by somebody else, and that the man will have his time. I really don't think uh, the restrainer is something human or a particular nation, or that he's restraining himself. I think from what we know about God's sovereignty and control over all things, this can't be something that has power over God. And so, I think we're left with the option that it is either God that is restraining this man or it is by God's power that the man is restrained, perhaps by the power of the Holy Spirit or by maybe a God-ordained agent, as something like an angel. The man's revelation is again mentioned by Paul. He will have his moment and we see in verses 11 and 12 that God will use this to condemn and reject those who've gone against him, those that have denied him. Paul alludes to to what we already all know about this world, that this mystery of lawlessness is already at work, it says. Again, this contrast with Jesus, that we're to hear his followers, and even his gospel is given. With Paul referring to The mystery of lawlessness. This word mystery, again, normally reserved for the gospel. Showing us clearly how Satan is a liar and a deceiver. How he has no power of creativity. He can only twist. He can only mimic God's good design and ultimately distract and deceive from God's plan of redemption for sinners. And Satan cannot bring new life, and he cannot take it away. This is an encouragement for the Thessalonians. Yes, Paul knows things are already hard, but this is not 
the end yet. Christian, you are right to recognize that sin is at work. At work in this world right now. Now what are we to make the the end of verse 7? Look there with me. It says, until he is out of the way. What are we to make of that? Until he is out of the way. I want you to think about what it's like to walk along a path, maybe even out for a walk in the countryside or on the corniche. And then you have a cyclist come behind you. What is that noise that you hear as they approach? That noise they often make, that noise that drives me a bit crazy. It's the bell. It's the ringing of the bell, right? That, that noise. And what does it mean? What does that noise mean when you hear it from behind you? In that moment, you have a choice to stand out of the way and allow this person to pass or not. You have a choice. You are in control. You don't, when, that noise, when you hear that noise and you step to one side, you don't disappear at that point. I'm saying that in in some ways, this is what we see here. That God is allowing the restraint of the man to end. This does not mean that God disappears. It means that God allows this man of lawlessness to come. Christian, God is never out of control. God is never manipulated or changed God's plans are never affected or altered. Christian, it is the same today, and it will be the same on that final day. God is in control. Now, having built this tension for a few verses, perhaps you raised your eyebrows reading some of what we've just looked at this week. I know I certainly did on Monday morning, and I reread this chapter. Verse 8 just comes along beautifully, encouraging, just pops that balloon immediately that you might have built up and worried about. Immediately cuts him down. He'll be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing. Friends, make no mistake. Jesus will end him by his breath. We saw that in chapter 1 and also in Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. How Jesus will reign victorious. Christian, this is really the main point of what we read here. And of what I want you to remember and take away from this morning. Yes, there is one coming to deceive. And yes, verse 9 tells us he will come with these exciting signs and wonders. But if you are in Christ, then you will see this. You will be unaffected. And ultimately, verse 8 shows us, Jesus will kill him. Paul doesn't even elaborate. Paul just says, yeah, he's going to kill him, so what? Friends, Jesus will reign victorious. If you don't know Jesus, though, if you reject him, then verses 10, 11, and 12 come as a grave warning to you this morning. This man will come. 
And Christians, as I've said, will recognize him for who he is, will be unaffected. But for everyone else, everyone else will be deceived. But why will they be deceived? Well, that's because they had no affection for God, no affection for the truth. Paul there says they refused to love the truth. And so they could not be saved. If you don't obey and follow Jesus here, we see that this is your responsibility. No one else is to blame. Not me, not the person who brought you here this morning, not the person who's been reading the Bible with you. If you don't believe in Christ, then this is your responsibility. As you have been born a sinner, you are someone that rebels and rejects God. That is who you are. God's perfect plan to reconcile sinners means that he sent his only son, Jesus. Jesus came to live, but he also came to die so that he could take the punishment for your sin, for my sin. Friends, that punishment is death. And it's not something you can do on your own. And amazingly, Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again. He beat sin and death. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He passed through. He went through the eternal punishment that you deserve to bring many Christians, many sinners to the Father. Friend, you are completely responsible before God and and how you respond to Jesus. Will you follow him? Or will you reject him? It is Satan's, make no mistake, it is Satan's deep desire for people to reject God. That is why he is sending this man of lawlessness. Paul mentions, yet we see here in verses 11 and 12 that God uses this. It says, in order that, in order that, that shows the purpose of what he is doing. God will delude those that reject him. He will use this to justly condemn them. Those that follow this man, this man of lawlessness, and reject truth, and then delight in their sin. Wickedness is shown to not just be the rejection of the truth, it is believing the lie, and then it is celebrating that. It's enjoying that. It is running hard after that. The judgment of God here is deliberate and specific, and it rightly follows on from man's rejection of God and a rejection of God's truth. Let me ask you this morning, will you trust in your truth? Or will you hear and believe the truth of God? For the unbeliever, there is rebellion and what is false. A trust in oneself that only leads to death. But for the Christian, there is obedience and truth. A trust in Christ that leads to eternal life. The grace of God means that God has chosen to save some sinners. And with this reminder, we turn now to our second point. Look there at verses 13 and 17 with me. Our second point, carry on. Carry on. 
Paul here grabs the attention of the Thessalonians with just a shift in verse 13 for us. I don't want us to miss again this contrast between Christ and the man of lawlessness, the life of the believer and the life of the wicked, the love of truth and the love of what is false. Paul, I want us just to consider this reminder here of faith in verse 13. A wonderful example for us. He knows because he has seen. He knows he is writing to the very first believers in that city in Greece. That church there, he says, is the first fruits. That's just the beginning of the harvest. The very first fruits to appear. And often in these societies, they would give these first fruits as an offering to God. So this phrase means something. It's special. Paul, yet again, just the ever-caring pastor, putting his arm around this congregation, around the Thessalonians, reminding them of all that God has done in them and what an encouragement they are to him and to other believers. And how he's just truly amazed at the work of God in this city. He can only respond in praise. Verses 13 and 14 then also remind the Christian they are saved because of this. They can stand firm and can persevere in the faith until that final day. In all of these things, we see that it is through God's sovereign will that all of this happens. That's why Paul begins with giving thanks to God. He's not just praising the Thessalonians and their good work. He's saying, praise God. God is the only one acting here. God chose you verse 13, and he called you, verse 14. Christian here today, brother or sister, is the same for you. By the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, God is sanctifying you for his purposes and for his glory. He began this work in you when you first believed the truth. Friends, we know and understand the truth of the gospel. There is no other way to be saved. If you don't know the gospel, then you cannot be a Christian. But more than this, if you don't believe the gospel, then you can't be a Christian. It is God that takes his word and applies it to your heart through the Holy Spirit and gives this gift of faith that is only by his grace. So that you, and Paul says it here, can obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What mystery this truth is for us. Friends, how deep and unimaginable is the holiness of God? How wide and incomprehensible is the love of God? Yet how simple and how straightforward is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is the same gospel that they, that Paul and the apostles, have preached and written. The same gospel they have taught and communicated with churches they have planted. This gospel that they received directly from Jesus Christ is described there as our gospel. And that's because it's the only one that is true and correct, not what is being peddled in the city center by traveling teachers and false prophets and sold by others. Paul, again, linking the work of the apostles with the church of the Thessalonians. 
you guys know us and we know you. You were saved and we were saved the same way. You have been persecuted and so have we. We will spend eternity with you for we all trust Christ alone for our salvation. That is why there is the word are there in verse 14. That's where it is coming from. Not only did the apostles receive the commission specifically from Jesus, but today, wonderfully, mysteriously, we have it preserved for us to open this morning. Yet, how often does it sit collecting dust on our bedside table or on our desk? Maybe you've downloaded the Bible on your phone. When did you last open that app? Is it in your recently opened apps or does it sit unused? Friends, it is the word of God that Jesus has given us for our own sanctification by the Spirit, but also to go out and speak and declare to the nations. There is no secret knowledge or special truth. Friends, it is only the word of God. The Bible is the truth. The word of God is the truth alone and nothing else compares to it. Christian, cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder how dismissive we are when things are hard of opportunities to praise God. Clearly, this church just having an awful time. Persecution was so bad. Rulers so aggressive towards them. Neighbors behaving so terribly towards them. Things so bad that the Thessalonians thought they were in the last days. It was truly horrendous. And they were struggling. Apollos stopped what he was doing to write to them, to point their gaze to heaven, to show them that all those that are afflicting them will face the judgment of God. But in amongst all of that, he also wants to stop, for them to stop and see what God has done for them, not just what he has done against their foes, what he has done for them. I wonder if it's the same for you, how tempting it can be to stop and to list the unanswered prayer we have on this hand, while ignoring the hundreds of ways God has provided for us on the other. How tempting is that for us? Friends, let me encourage you this week in your quiet time as you pray, as you read, begin that time by listing all the ways God has provided for you, even just that morning. Just start with that morning. And see how that changes your affection. See how that changes your perspective on all that God is doing for you. See what he has done. Stop and consider how mighty and awesome are his ways. And how he has you in the palm of his hand. No matter what is going on in your life. Chapter 2 for us just concludes with a prayer and a reminder for the Thessalonians. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. Paul again says that it is God through the, the coming of Christ 
that has already shown that he loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Is the same Jesus that Paul asked to encourage and strengthen the Thessalonians as he reminds them of his promises over them. There can be no doubt for the Thessalonians. And it's the same for us. It is Christ alone who strengthens and encourages. It is Christ alone who brings us comfort and joy. And it is Christ alone who we must honor and obey. At the beginning, we considered marriage. A Christian, there is coming a day when Christ will gather with his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they will be together for eternity. Church, you are his bride. What a marvelous thing. There is nothing to fear on that day if you are with him. In anticipation of that wedding feast, each Sunday here is really just a beautiful rehearsal of that day to come. Look around, Christian. See a glimpse of what is to come. No matter what or who is to come in this life, whether rebellion or lawlessness, persecution or affliction, you will be united with Christ. We know that Christ will overcome and he will return for his bride. As we're about to sing, it will be your joy through the ages, a sinner condemned unclean. For he has taken your sins and your sorrows and his face you at last shall see. Then with all the ransomed in glory, you will sing how marvelous How wonderful is my Savior's love for me.